I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. It's July 4th, 1863. On the 87th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, a Philadelphia newsboy hawks his papers at the corner of Market and Fifth, only a few blocks from Independence Hall, exclaiming the news, read all about it, Union defeat at Gettysburg, Confederates win, Union retreats. It has been a tense number of days since General Robert E. Lee invaded the North marching his forces into southern Pennsylvania, eventually attacking Union troops on July 1st at the small town of Gettysburg. At first, after a rocky start, the Union soldiers managed to hold their lines against the rebel onslaught. But eventually, the relentless charges in muggy, oppressive heat took their toll, and the Union blue collapsed, falling into disarray. Everyone is now dreadfully aware of the obvious implication. The Union effort cannot possibly survive this defeat. The war will soon be over. So it seems will be the nation, at least as generations of Americans have proudly known it so far. In this alternative reality, a great existential question looms. What would the country and the world be like without the South? How will the United States fare when they are officially no longer united? Hi there, everyone. Welcome to American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman. Today, we're in the realm of the counterfactual. What if history? Conjecture and hypothesis on what might have been had pivotal events of history not transpired as they did. What would the consequences be in a topsy-turvy world if, say, Rome hadn't fallen? Would we have had the Renaissance? What if Gutenberg had never considered the printing press? Would common folk have ever learned to read? If Thomas Jefferson had followed his own declaration and insisted that all men are created equal and freed those he enslaved, you get the idea. Counterfactual speculates on what didn't happen in order to more fully grasp what did. And today we turn this lens on one of the great questions of American history. What if the Confederacy had won the Civil War? Nearly happened, dangerously close, had Lincoln not held the line, and certainly if he hadn't won re-election in 1864, or maybe not. The consequences of a Union surrender. Well, let's consider it all, guided today by our guest, Professor Aaron Sheehan-Dean, History Department Chair at Louisiana State University. Go Tigers! Dr. Sheehan-Dean has written and taught extensively about Civil War history and 19th century political thought, and authored and edited a long list of books and articles we'll be sure to mention later on. 
Greetings, Professor. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. This looks like it'll be fun. I'm fascinated by this subject because, like most Northerners at least, my understanding of the Southern states' stakes in this civil war is a product of rote and repetitive learning. The civil war was fought over slavery and states' rights. True. But if we imagine a world in which the South has won, I bet it goes a lot deeper than that. Is that fair to say? It is. The realistic outcome is that the South fights the North to a stalemate. Mm. That is, they don't conquer the North. That proposition is pretty unlikely, I think, but it's entirely feasible, as you suggested, that the South could fight the North to a point where they say enough. Mm -hmm. And then we're left with this big question of what does North America look like with an independent Confederacy and a fractured United States? North America and the world. I mean, the repercussions of this are profound. And when you think of the United States role in the international scene later on, I mean, it's amazing to consider the the consequences. So let's go total counterfactual here. When and where did this war end? How did the Union lose? And how did that play out? You've already mentioned it was more of of a negotiation. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think, but there's probably two key moments that most Civil War historians today would identify One is what lost cause people call the high water mark of the Confederacy, the point at Gettysburg where the Confederate Mm. troops advanced and briefly breached the Union line. And a lot has been kind of misinterpreted around that moment. But certainly if the Confederates had defeated the Northern Army or fought them to a stalemate up in Pennsylvania, it would have given enormous leverage to an already rising Northern peace movement and forced Lincoln probably into a position of having to think about negotiating in order to negotiating a stalemate in order to manage a very restive population. Well, imagine that time, and we've done this on a previous episode, 1863. Boy, if they are taken down by the Confederacy on Union soil, that would not have played well for his election. And there was a really strong reason for him to sort of go to the table for that. The kind of popular assumption or the popular interpretation of the Civil War is that Gettysburg is a turning point and the Confederates know they've lost at that point, which is not at all true. And most obviously because Lincoln himself thinks that he's in serious electoral jeopardy all the way through 1864. I mean, most famously in August of 1864, he writes a note in which he says, this is August, I think, 23rd or so of 64. It looks as though I will lose the upcoming election. If I do so, my candidate, my opponent will have been elected on the promise to end the war immediately. I am going to fight until I am replaced with the goals intact, meaning reunion and emancipation. He puts that in an envelope, seals it, has his cabinet sign it to kind of identify I've committed to this before I've lost, but I know that that's going to happen so that people don't say he's going off in some wild tangent later on. It's only in October, really, with the capture of Atlanta, the capture of Mobile Bay, that happens in late August, and then the victories in the Shenandoah Valley, that those are in September and October, that Lincoln's victory looks much more assured. And if Lincoln is defeated in 1864, is defeated by a Democrat who's committed publicly to ending the war and to negotiating a solution which leaves an independent confederacy. So in our counterfactual world, there is a treaty signed, let's say, that creates two states. We have the United States of America. They're not going to give up that name. But then what's the other nation called, do you think? Well, it's called the Confederate States of America. And the question then becomes the boundaries of both of these states. Mm -hmm. And so I think one issue for us to talk about is what happens to the North You know, before the Civil War, there are 37 states. You've got 11 in the Confederacy with Missouri and Kentucky in the Union, but slaveholding states. And so there's a very open question of what happens to the future of that. And then, of course, the Confederates, what we know from recent research is that the Confederates are looking 
with great ambition to the south, imagining that they will be able to acquire territory in the Caribbean or maybe Mexico or parts of Latin America today. And so certainly there are those two states, the United States and the Confederate States. Is it fair to say that they would be guided by the Articles of Confederation? I mean, would that be basically their constitution? Were they fighting to go back to that? No, the Confederacy adopted a constitution that is largely the U.S. Constitution, importantly with preservations for slavery built into the text of that document. The U.S. Constitution famously is ambiguous where it has the three-fifths clause. It has the return of fugitive slaves, but it never uses the word slave. And this was a key point for abolitionists fighting against slavery is that they read the founders' refusal to use the word slave as an acknowledgement that that was not a category that belonged in the future United States. The Confederates solved that problem when they adopt their constitution, but for the most part, it's a constitution. Jefferson Davis is term limited to one six-year term. There's some kind of a few structural differences, but it says up front, slavery is protected. It's such an interesting notion. You know, whenever I consider this back then, certainly at the beginning of the nation, the United States would have been sort of mimicking the European continent, which has a lot of different countries. Our version of that are states, you know, called states, which sort of sounds like countries. But that was the idea of the United States, is that we were all these different republics, really, all, all joined up, but all speaking the same language and having different kinds of relationships than they certainly had in Europe. But now you've got the different version of that. You've got two nations on the same landmass, and it's all going to play out much like Europe does, I imagine. Certainly. I mean, the United States people should remember is bigger, that is, the continental United States is bigger than Europe in terms of landmass, and there are, you know, 45 countries in continental Europe, so there's nothing inevitable about the shape of the United States. And as, as you were saying at the beginning of the show, Lincoln talks about the future of democracy for the world. He talks about the United States as the last best hope of Earth, the last best hope of man, meaning the future of democracy is in great peril because, of course, the revolutions of 1848, which were intended to bring democracy to Western Europe, had largely failed. They had failed in Italy and in Germany and in France and in England, and those had been overturned with kind of counter-revolutionary moments, and they had strengthened the empires there. And so the United States is really the only place that is still pursuing democracy so from Lincoln's perspective, and most Northerners, the stakes here are not just important for Americans, but Europeans, particularly European conservatives, are watching this to know if this fails, if this country ruptures itself, it will be a repudiation of the idea of universal white manhood suffrage. Mm. That was introduced over the 1830s and 40s and 50s, and many conservatives said that's sure to end in disaster. The secession, the rupture of the United States would have proven them correct in their view and would certainly have turned back the tide of democratic movements in England, in France, in all of the places where we sort of see democracy starting to develop in Europe. Frightening resonance through to today, isn't it? Yeah. The Confederate nation is much smaller in population. Its economy is entirely reliant on agriculture and exports, I imagine, cotton being foremost, surely. I suppose their plan is to move west with new farmlands. Is that true? Or just to the south, as you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that they're entirely dependent. I mean, there is industrialization in parts of certainly the Upper South. There's tobacco factories. There are iron forges. There are places where enslaved people are being put into labor in what we think, you know, railroads, for instance, own enslaved people mm -hmm. in the 1840s and 50s and are managing those as a kind of permanent labor supply. So there is a way in which you can see future industrial development on a more limited scale that still relies on enslaved labor. But certainly they have ambitions to move west. 
and to seize territory. There were efforts during the war to seize parts of New Mexico and Arizona that didn't succeed, but a successful and sort of territorially complete confederacy would have then pursued that to the south, especially they're eager to acquire Cuba, which is a huge slave power and an enormously profitable space for sugar production as it really replacing Haiti after that, after the independence movement there. So they're terrifically ambitious. And, you know, this is another issue to talk about is what the future of slavery looks like. We've talked a little bit about the future of democracy, but Cuba and Brazil are giant slave economies and deeply committed to that. And in the real history, those collapse. That might not have been the case had the Confederacy won. But certainly Confederates are eager and see the expansion of slavery as essential to maintaining that system. It cannot be curtailed. And that was really the genesis of the war itself. I want to drill down on that big time in, in just a few moments, but I'm just sort of trying to lay out the framework of this new state. Do they have a large military? I mean, they've just won a war essentially, right? Uh, they do, certainly compared to the pre-war. The pre-war United States Army is about 40,000 soldiers the Confederate states put in uniform about 900,000 men over the course of the Civil War. The Union puts in action about 2.1 million men. So a kind of, you know, enormously exponential scale up. And even though the vast majority of those men would have been demobilized, the Confederacy still would have been left. Even had they maintained a standing army, it would have been two or three times the size of the pre-war American army, which they would have needed to kind of defend the boundaries and to expand west or to expand south. That's the thing. I can't imagine that they didn't sit around and say, once we do this, once we create the state, we're in a constant, you know, fear of the North coming to do battle again, you know, or at least peel off a state here or there or half a state. I mean, it's going to be a big tension having achieved their dream. Look out. Yeah. And I think like all new states, there's a kind of, of Janus face here. On the one hand, if you prove that you are independent, you believe and you pretend as though that's good for all time. Right. On the other hand, you are deeply anxious about what the future holds. You can see the same history prevailed in the United States, that is, after independence. On the one hand, the United States presents this face to the world as though we are a perpetual republic. But of course, Britain doesn't actually pay much attention to that and almost mm -hmm. immediately begins impressing sailors. And it's really only the War of 1812 that it cements American independence and autonomy. That whole interregnum, as I think many people would have thought of it from 1783 with the conclusion of the American Revolution until 1812. There's a lot of uncertainty about just how independent this place will be. Economically, it's dependent on the trade routes established in the British Empire. How is it really going to function? So it really takes decades to kind of establish that. And certainly this would have been true in a place in which they are territorially contiguous, not separated by an ocean. Well, they would have had strong allies, I suppose. England being one, I guess France too, right? They were going to be recognized. The emperor was more equal. There was a great recent book by a French historian that UNC Press translated that chronicles French diplomacy through the Civil War by a scholar named Stephen Sandlod, and that the emperor was more eager for this than his foreign secretary. As it turns out, the French foreign secretary really sort of implemented foreign policy the way he wanted to in a way that's hard to imagine today. That is the discrepancy because the emperor was Louis Napoleon was quite convinced that committing to the Confederacy would be in the French long-term interests. This is in alliance with their effort to recapture Mexico, Napoleon III. His cousin is sent, a guy named Maximilian is sent with an army and he invades Mexico, mm. theoretically on behalf of kind of conservative Catholics there, but initiates an effort to realign parts of Mexico under a, what Napoleon envisioned to be a kind of Latin world to rival the Protestant Christian world. Mm. 
and this goes on through 1864 and 65, Maximilian is eventually executed, it generates enormous uncertainty in the United States about whether Mexico is itself going to remain independent or whether Europe will be able to reestablish power here. And the Confederacy is playing this very, very dangerously. That is, they make overtures towards the French to say, we would accept your sort of acquisition of territory here, even though it's territory they themselves want. Yes. It would have violated the Monroe Doctrine and so on. It gives us some sense of the difficulties that the Confederacy would have been in, in terms of its diplomatic posture, because they really want that territory. But a conservative French regime might be better than an independent Mexican one, certainly Mm -hmm. one that is more diplomatically aligned with the North. So the French, yes, the British are divided on this question of recognizing the Confederacy. But if the Confederacy had fought to a stalemate, there's no question that they would have acknowledged that and begun trade and sort of invested in the idea of an independent Confederacy. Their industry, I mean, their textile industry is very reliant on the cotton coming from the South. So in their self-interest, they would have had to do that. Let's talk about the issue of slavery. Their victory has now confirmed for them that they have every right to do this. Are they going to grow this at this point, or are there seeds of some sort of reform in the South? Over the last couple of decades, historians have been arguing about this question of the kind of future of slavery and the posture of slaveholders, of enslavers, on the question of slavery's future. In the 1980s, it would be fair to say there were a number of historians that thought that slaveholders themselves were quite anxious and unsure about the fit between this institution and the modern world. But I would say that over the last 20 years, what we have seen is a shift and more historians would argue that enslavers themselves felt quite confident that slavery was a viable institution in the modern world. So that enslaved people were being put to work in factories, that corporations could purchase and own enslaved people that they did not foresee some inevitable clash between an industrial capital world, if that's the direction that the, that the world is trending, and slavery. There's no question that they publicly express a great deal of confidence about this. Privately, there is all the usual anxieties that I think we all have about are we doing the right things in a kind of global sense. But as you say, what Confederate victory here, and victory for them again means an independent confederacy, What that does is confirm their sense that slavery is the future. And the debate among what historians call pro-slavery theorists had evolved to the point where the most extreme of those people are arguing by the late 1850s that slavery should not, in fact, be tied to race. That slavery, this is a guy named George Fitzhugh, who writes a series of books, the last one, Cannibals All, which is a really a criticism of capitalism. Because what capitalism does is consume people. He's looking at industrial England and he's looking at New York City and Philadelphia, where it is certainly true that workers are entirely disposable. He's reading that as evidence that slavery, which he, of course, misreads deliberately as a system that's benevolent and then takes care of enslaved people, is a better long-term alternative. But they are absolutely committed to a future in which slavery expands and is the defining economic model for labor relations in the modern world. Right. It's very hard for modern people to even understand what that would mean today. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content like mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great. But you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. 
American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It's important to keep the context internationally here. I mean, slavery is in many parts of the world, and this would be emboldened by the Confederate success. Yes. I mean, most importantly, in Brazil and Cuba, those are the two remaining slave powers and hugely profitable places. Cuba, almost exclusively sugar. Brazil, enslaved people are forced to labor in mines. They are doing work on sugar and also tobacco plantations that have tobacco started to expand in the 18th century in Brazil. Enormously profitable. And those are places deeply committed to slavery. And what we see in the real history is that slavery's ultimate demise in Cuba and Brazil hinges significantly on the defeat of the Confederacy. Wow. That is, in those places, the end of slavery plays out because they are watching what happens here. Mm. Enslavers in both those places say, we do not want to go down the road of a violent, destructive war in which slavery ends without compensation. So during the Brazilian parliament, when they are debating slavery and slavery's demise, and in both these places, it's a very phased, gradual emancipation, they are looking explicitly at the United States and talking about what's happening. Mm. But you can imagine the opposite transpiring, which is If the Confederacy remains intact and slavery is emboldened, as you say, then legislators and the kind of governing authority in Cuba and Brazil recommits. The English Navy is already significantly invested in interdicting, that is, slave traffic in the Atlantic. The Atlantic slave trade had theoretically been outlawed by the treaty in 1808 that the U.S. was a party to. Mm -hmm. But there are Confederate senators and leaders who are advocating for the reopening of the Atlantic slave trade, that is the African slave trade, back to the South. 
So that too would become a kind of viable question, I think, you know, for a lot of strategic political reasons, mostly having to do with the trade within the South, that is between the Eastern seaboard states and places like Louisiana, Mississippi, and Virginia, Jefferson Davis and others had tried to squelch talk of reopening the Atlantic trade. But if slavery is confirmed as the better labor model, as opposed to free labor, and Brazil had been this whole time trying to import and had been successfully importing, and of course there are enslaved people smuggled into the United States, even into the 1850s, around that British blockade, what happens to the future of the slave trade? I mean, very few people have actually kind of teased out a what if to thinking about the reopening of the trade. So somebody may wind up correcting me here, but there is a sizable faction within the Confederacy that thinks that's a good idea. Then there's the idea of, you know, how this affects colonization. It would be a much more extreme system had the United States say it's okay, or at least the Confederacy. No, it's an interesting question, partly because the European excuse for its serious colonization efforts in Africa in the 1880s is precisely to stop the slave trade. Hmm. They're mostly talking about a slave trade that's moving up across North Africa into the Middle East, but that was part of a slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade that had been, you know, 500 years in the making and that we usually date the end of that Atlantic trade in all of its facets to the 1880s because that's when Brazil finally ends slavery. Yeah. And only, as I say, is it really, I think, significantly as a result of the defeat of the Confederacy. But without the defeat of the Confederacy, as Brazil continues to smuggle, certainly, yes, it changes the landscape around the world in terms of what the future looks like, both as a pretext for colonization, the anti-slavery effort. That was a very cynical effort. But as you say, it, it could have looked worse still, which it's kind of hard to imagine, but it's possible. Up north, this loss has the effect of energizing political reform. Is that fair to say? So it would do a couple of things. First, it's important to remember that the Republican Party is brand new. Yeah. That party only organized itself in the 1850s as the Whig Party sort of implodes. 1856 is the first time they run a candidate for president. He's defeated. It's only the second time in 1860 when they run a candidate and Abraham Lincoln wins. It's kind of hard to imagine today, say, the Green Party having yeah. been successful in, you know, 2000 to get us to actually win a presidency that tells you how dynamic the political context is. But it would have meant that the Republican Party would have imploded itself because if they had lost the Civil War, if Lincoln had mismanaged that, which is how it would, the Democrats certainly would have spun it, you would then have a, a series of probably decades of political turmoil mm. as the Democrats return to power. The Democrats are generally much more favorable towards slavery than the Republicans obviously had been. That was an anti-slavery party. And so the question of what the political landscape looks like is totally uncertain. Yeah. The other significant outcome is that what it does is verify that secession is a viable option within the United States' framework. So then the question becomes to California and Washington and Oregon, which are separated by a vast gulf of largely unsettled territory, really from the western side of Iowa all the way to the eastern side of California, there are hardly any Anglo-Americans in that space in 1860. So that the West may have decided we should be our own nation as well, with a kind of Pacific orientation. There is deep political dissatisfaction in the upper Midwest, the sort of northern Ohio Valley, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. You can imagine a breakaway republic there. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is part of what Lincoln worries about in the context of democracy itself, that it repudiates self-government, and then you get a splintering that produces something like Europe eight or 10 separate nation states in the space of North America, all kind of hostily 
you know, angrily disposed towards one another, but united by a common kind of cultural background. Sure. I was just thinking about how politically, regardless of who's in power, you've taken away the slavery issue from the North. I mean, all that fight was for preventing the South from doing it. Suddenly that argument is gone. And is there this sort of bounce back effect that goes on where suddenly they're sort of free of that burden? Is that a, an interesting way of looking at it or am I misconstruing it? Yeah, no, no, you're right that slavery as a political issue was a political issue in the North as much as it was between the North and the South. Yeah. That is Northern Democrats and whoever their opponents are. By 1852 or so, they become the Republicans and they fight desperately over this question, which is why once that issue is effectively taken out of the context in the Civil War itself, the Republican Party is able to then initiate a whole series of reforms that had been bottled up by conflict over slavery. So significantly, these are the Homestead Act, which allows settlers to move into that space between Iowa and California and settle the West largely white settlers. The Transcontinental Railroad had been suspended on this question of slavery because no one could agree on the proper route. But if you aren't working to accommodate Southern senators, then it adopts a route out of Chicago across the Northern Great Plains down to San Francisco. And that gets built immediately. And in mm -hmm. fact, during the Civil War, it's the one federal construction project that Lincoln allows to go forward. There's the Morrill College Act, which provides for the foundation of today's whole academic structure for the United States. The profusion of state colleges and universities that provide agricultural and mechanical training. And um, it's hard I mean, that looks like a very kind of humdrum infrastructural change, but it means this is the foundation for today's higher educational system in the United States, which is sort of unrivaled around the world. That too was bottled up in Congress. So Republicans passed those in very rapid succession during the Civil War in the real history. And so the question of whether they can somehow maintain themselves and capitalize on that is a very interesting one. Certainly the United States after the war is positioned much differently in terms of economic development and modernization as a result of these kinds of acts. Yeah, The Banking Act is another one. The United States banking system was hopelessly decentralized and really inefficient before the war. And there's a Banking Act passed in 1862, which streamlines that and enables capital to move much more efficiently within the post-war United States and provides that huge kind of developmental boost that we know the railroads, urbanization, industrialization in the yeah. 1870s and 80s. You mentioned the cessation becomes normalized on this continent because of this. And I think that really plays out even on more local basis. I mean, it changes the political discourse completely. I grew up in South Jersey, completely different than North Jersey. So why wouldn't that be North Jersey and South Jersey? Just like you have North and South Carolina. I really think there's just a, a snowball effect that goes on that probably leads to the destruction of the Republican Party on one hand. You know, there's a lot of other things that happen as a result. Yeah, I think the question of what it means to have self-government, this was Lincoln's sort of chief concern with secession, mm. which he viewed as incompatible with self-government of any type. That is yeah. the building of a republic, a political system that depends on the representation of the people, because no one would ever be party to a political system that could sort of continuously fracture, as you point out. Mm -hmm. I mean, New Jersey, I often joke that, you know, New Jersey was actually the northernmost Confederate state. They vote against Lincoln both times in 60 and 64. It's a place, you know, slavery is not outlawed in New York and New Jersey until very late. And there are enslaved people held there in bondage late into the antebellum period. But you're right that even within a place like New Jersey, there are actually deep 
kind of regional animosities. Mm -hmm. So if secession has worked to fracture at that federal level, why couldn't counties themselves try to organize? And, you know, famously, there's a great book called The Free State of Jones about Jones County, Mississippi, and their efforts to basically secede from the Confederacy. Or West Virginia, sorry, the more at-hand example. West Virginia is created in 1863 by fracturing Virginia itself, which according to the U.S. Constitution can only happen with the sanction of the state, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, pulled itself out of the United States. What the Lincoln government does is recognize a kind of restored government of Virginia at a place called Wheeling, way up the panhandle near Pittsburgh. And the Wheeling government, now theoretically representing the Commonwealth, says we're happy to allow the state of West Virginia to be built. That is, a state itself does fracture during the war, and West Virginia is created in order to give Lincoln more kind of leverage in the Senate. But that sets a precedent for a highly irregular system of state creation and fracturing. You know, I lived in West Virginia temporarily for a while, two years, and I mean, it's a great place. Its creation was extra constitutional. There's just no easy way to put that. Interesting. Or some way that makes it sound like it was actually proper. It happened outside the existing political order. And so are there people who will take advantage of that? Certainly. Right. In a post-war United States. You're the guest on the future West Virginia show. Warning, we're coming for you. I'm going to get hate mail from Charleston. I mean, you know, they're very proud of their position and their legacy as having been a kind of state for Lincoln. But when you get down to the details, it's not entirely legal. It's this political detail that I was mentioning at the top, that it is, you know, crucial to keep in mind the issues of slavery and states' rights in general. But this war was fought over other kinds of ideas as well. You know, much subtler, much more granular ideas that someone like Abraham Lincoln had in his mind. This was the lawyer mind playing this whole thing out in his head. It could not have worked for a future United States. Yeah, and I think even just sort of everyday white Northerners as well. I mean, slavery is incontestably the issue that divides North and South and that and the fight over the expansion of slavery brings on the Civil War. And it ennobles the Northern cause when they finally, and of course it takes years for them to finally adopt a posture that endorses emancipation. And then after the war, Northerners are able to kind of celebrate themselves for doing that. But there are, as you say, sort of also philosophical kind of underpinnings to this. And most white Northerners are, like Lincoln, view secession as a threat to law and order. Mm -hmm. That is, there is a way in which the economic conservatives in the North, the people that ran cotton factories in New York, had old relationships with slaveholders in the South. There's an old argument about the kind of collegiality, as it were, between what's called the lords of the loom, people who run textile factories, and the lords of the lash, the enslavers in the South. That those two people, they were business partners and had old and very tight relationships. But political conservatives viewed secession as a kind of existential threat to the nature of self-government. Because we agree that the boundaries here last. Lincoln said this, you know, even before he was reelected on the question of secession. No government ever created in its founding document the mechanism for its own destruction. Yes. That would be a kind of preposterous thing. And so he says, no, of course, secession is not constitutional. The Constitution in its 1860, in its formulation from 1789, didn't explicitly outlaw secession. He viewed it as one of those obvious givens that a founding document wouldn't say, well, if you decide that some rump faction is unhappy, they can at any point blow up the whole system. That suggests that self-government is impossible. And this was the concern. There was a great book a couple of years ago by a historian named Don Doyle called Mankind, the Cause of All Mankind. It was a reading of the ways that European reformers 
pin their hopes on the North. Mm. These are French and British liberals and French reformers desperately hoping that with a union victory, it will empower them to make reforms in their countries. And they're working against those conservatives who are hoping the other side of this, that is, they want the North to fail and to empower conservatism. But, you know, we don't get the, the major Second Reform Act in England until 1867, I think. That is an increasingly liberal right to vote for men in England. And that's partly because those reformers are able to use the momentum of Northern victory to say, this is now the direction of the modern world. You've led to the next question, which is about how this plays out towards the 20th century. I mean, we don't even have reconstruction. That doesn't happen. We didn't reconstruct any nation. So this whole effort to re-amalgamate the South into the North never has to happen. As a result, a lot of movements whose seeds are in that period of time, for better or worse, don't take hold and do not sprout, including the civil rights movement. I mean, it's an entirely different 20th century, really. Well, yes. I mean, certainly demographically, and this is another factor that a lot of people, a lot of students, my students in college, need to kind of learn and understand, which is that in 1860, 90% of the black population of the United States lives in the South. Exactly. That's true really into the 1880s and 90s, right? The Great Migration is a function of the 20th century and really a function of the second and third decades of the 20th century. So it's far in the future. So demographically, that means there are very few African-Americans in most Northern places. Some cities like New York and Philadelphia and Boston have large African-American populations, but the Midwest, there are whole counties where there are no black people at all. Mm -hmm. So it dramatically changes the posture there as it would in the South, because you've got places where it will remain, no doubt, you know, sort of 50-50 white and black. So for those free black communities of the North that had been pushing for reform, pushing to enfranchise black men who get the right to vote in, in some places, desegregated schools in Massachusetts, certainly a civil war that's fought to a stalemate reduces much of the incentive and the kind of moral arguments for maintaining that posture in the sure. North and changes, you say, the ability of those people in the future, because most Northern states are run by white people deeply hostile to black people. You know, they are, white Northerners are absorbing the same racial science as white Southerners all through the 1840s and 50s. States like Illinois and Indiana in their early statehood had laws preventing the in-migration of free people of color. Yeah. They don't want any black people at all. But nonetheless, there are black people that move there. So the question is, what are what do their lives look like in a United States in which the vast majority of people of African descent are kind of confined to the South mm. and a South in which slavery remains and you've got 4 million enslaved people in 1860, you can imagine that population expanding through natural reproduction to 7 or 8 million, I mean, huge numbers in the 1870s or 1880s yeah. if this sort of scenario played out. Talk about a border crisis. Can you imagine what that border is like with fugitive escaped enslaved people are going, you know, all the time trying to get over that border? Yeah. The United States is probably setting up similar situations as we have in Mexico on the border there. You know, we, we don't want them coming because it's too difficult to deal with. And, you know, however much we may sympathize, all that is going on in a big scale. Does that border continue out the same way, you know, right the Mason-Dixon line all the way out, do you think? Certainly the North would have, an independent confederacy, the North would have done its best to hold on to, yes, California and the Western territories. But as we talked about earlier, you know, those are sort of an open question. Mm -hmm. I mean, ordinarily historians don't cite fiction. There's actually a really fascinating <laughs> novel that picks up this story that readers might enjoy called Underground Airlines, 
by a, an author named Ben Winter from maybe four or five years ago. And it is a kind of speculative fiction that imagines a future in which slavery was maintained in what it calls, the author calls the hard four, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and I think Georgia. The rest of the United States is a free labor United States, but it deals very well actually with imagining the kind of dynamic of how you would build a, a space for slavery in a modern world in which, as we assume today, free labor is the norm. That is the yeah. movement of people and goods and ideas across those boundaries. And that a cardinal right of freedom is the ability to make your own decision about how you earn your bread. Yeah. Not, as Lincoln would have said, that you can earn your bread off the sweat of another man's brow. Mm -hmm. I mean, historians don't typically write in these counterfactual ways, though there are a couple of books that do this. But there are some authors that have done this. And Winters is actually a very, I think, carefully done imagining of what that world looks like. And it's a horrifying picture. Yeah of if you can imagine the kind of modern border patrol and surveillance status then bonded to an institution as violent and cruel as American slavery, as American chattel slavery. And, you know, we haven't talked in detail about what the life for enslaved people looks like in independent South, an independent Confederacy, but it, it no doubt gets crueler and more violent as the kind of hard boundaries now are defined around that. Sure. And you start having much more factory labor and, you know, hardcore stuff going on. And not that it already wasn't, but uh, it just gets worse and worse, as you say. It's extraordinary. You know, for years, I have, in a very cavalier way, totally amateur way, said that the United States really begins with the Civil War, the modern United States version. Personally, that's how it seems to me and how I've talked about it with friends and so forth. But it really does feel that way when we talk about this, because the repercussions are so gigantic. But the counterfactual allows us us to understand how profound a united United States has been in the 150 plus years since then. It's amazing the effect that that unity created around the world. Never mind World War I, World War II. I mean, the list just goes on and on about what kind of influence we had as a result of winning the Civil War, really. Yeah, winning the Civil War and ending slavery so that the United States is sort of wholly committed to a free labor model, which is the successful model that yields such tremendous economic growth mm -hmm. in the United States between 1870 and, you know, entry into World War One and World War Two. All of that is sort of powered by the end of slavery, I mean, in some ways, is sort of economically related to that and what free labor and free enterprise sort of opens up. I'm struck immediately, you know, when you mentioned the migration. The Great Migration changes everything. Never mind labor force, et cetera, et cetera. Rock and roll. I mean, you know, there's so many things in American life that just don't happen if this thing doesn't occur. It's, it's extraordinary. It's too much to talk about in the conversation we've had, but I hope that this wakes up in people, the extraordinary dynamics that were created after the fact. And thank God for it. I'm not impartial. As a Civil War historian, I'm going to argue for the, the importance and the centrality of the Civil War. So even setting that aside, there's a reason why, still, U.S. history at the college level and at the high school level breaks at the Civil War. That is, we teach the first half of U.S. history up to December, and then January is Reconstruction, and then, and then you sort of finish as close as you can get to the modern era. And textbooks are structured that way. Because the Civil War functioned as a hinge that brought the United States into a dramatically different 
And at the time, they would have said modern, and we might still say that posture. That is, what I tell my students is the problems that brought the United States into the Civil War, the dispute over slavery, the dispute over federalism, that is the relationship between the state and federal governments, and the question of kind of national cultural coherence, those are not solved by the Civil War. They are changed by the Civil War. They are transformed, and they're transformed into our modern problems. That is, we continue to argue over race in American life. We continue to argue bitterly over federalism, and we continue to argue over the degree to which we are a culturally coherent and unified place. The ways that we do that are built on the outcomes of the Civil War. Thank God we no longer have slavery, but that hardly solves the problem. A commitment among many people to white supremacy and to the the persecution of black people, which, as you've talked about reconstruction and all of the work, the long civil rights movements, as historians now talk about it, that really can be anchored in the 19th century and extend through, but we still are working from a foundation created by the Civil War. And so that's where I think thinking counterfactually helps highlight the paths not taken and might help us see anew what the consequences of the path taken are for, as you say, both the United States and the world. It's the long reach of the Civil War, worth returning to the well over and over again. Aaron Sheehan Dean is the Fred C. Fry, Professor of History at Louisiana State University, specializing in 19th century political and social thought, as well as the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction. He is author of The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War, Reckoning with Rebellion, War and Sovereignty in the 19th Century, and Why Confederates Fought Family and Nation in Civil War Virginia. Thank you so much, Professor. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. This was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.